You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Hey, I'm Moses with the Bloomberg Crypto Podcast. We're taking a little bit of a break to recharge and prep for the new year. So this week, we're rerunning some of the team's best loved episodes. Today, we're re-upping one of my personal favorites. It's an interview with Mark Venturelli, CEO of gaming studio Rogue Snail and crypto blogger Emily Nicole. Mark gives us a philosophical assessment on the role of NFTs in gaming and the unintended consequences that NFTs could have on gamers, especially those from poorer backgrounds. All the best for the new year, and we hope you enjoy the show. Imagine it's October 2021. Crypto prices are rocketing. Celebrities can't stop talking about NFTs to other celebrities. There's packed conferences in glitzy venues in places like Miami and London, attended by people wearing t-shirts with cartoon monkeys on them. If you're an executive at a big gaming studio seeing all of this happen, you might, might be forgiven for sending one of those emails with a subject line like NFT strategy? And several executives at gaming companies did indeed send those emails. And some of their companies rushed to announce plans about how they were going to make blockchain gaming happen. Flash forward about a year to right now, October 2022. Celebrities aren't talking about their NFTs. People are trying to sell those apes. And gaming studios don't seem quite so convinced that they even need an NFT strategy anymore. Joining me to discuss this vibe shift are Bloomberg reporter Emily Nicole. Definitely the overwhelming reaction to that marketplace was not positive from both fans and staff who complained very loudly. And game developer Mark Venturelli. One of the things that most concern me in current society, I think we are... It's the death of imagination, right? I think we're very much a literal society. Mark, Emily, welcome to the show. Mark, I'm going to start with you because our listeners know who Emily is by now. Please tell us who you are and what brings you here today. Thank you. Happy to be here. Uh, My name is Mark Fentorelli. And I'm the CEO of Roguesdale, which is a game development studio here in Brazil. And I've been a professional game designer for 
over 15 years. Very exciting. I, as I tell everyone at this point, they all know somehow it working in the video games industry is like where I would have gone had I not made the decision to be a journalist. So it is always a pleasure to get to talk about video it's games. Haha. <laughs> yeah. Don't tell my bosses. They listen to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but you are here today talking to us because you did a very interesting thing a couple of months ago, which is show up on a panel virtually at a conference start to talk about one thing and then be like, actually, never mind. We're going to talk about NFTs and why they're ruining video games. And so perhaps that is a, a, a strong characterization of your presentation. But, you know, I would love to get your perspective as a person working in the industry on what you have observed in terms of this conversation around crypto and gaming, blockchain and gaming, NFTs and gaming, and what has happened for you in the months after you went semi-viral for that talk. I think the answer to that question also uh, clears up a little bit of a misconception around my talk, which is um, I kind of do change subjects, but it's jokingly. I mean, I'm an entertainer, right? I know how to command people people's attentions uh, with uh, gimmicks and flashy stuff. That's what we do a lot in video game design. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> uh, the name of my talk originally was, uh, and still is, the future of game design. And in the middle of that talk, I say, actually, like, I'll change the name. Uh, I'll change the title of this talk now. And it's going to be Why NFTs Are a Nightmare. And then I start talking about that. And then at some point, after I give enough context uh, about why I think NFT should not be part of this future of game design. I changed the title back to the future game design and I continue. And so it was kind of a playful thing, mm -hmm. um, but it was all into like a, a single concise argument. And to answer your question about like the motivation, I think it is impossible to discuss the future of game design, the future of entertainment, and in many ways, the future of humanity, right? Without addressing current trends and technology, without talking about the blockchain specifically, uh, but also NFTs even more specifically. Right? Mm -hmm. I felt like I had a unique point of view, being a game designer and also being someone who not only I have working, I have been working on the entertainment industry for my entire life. I also am very much a technology enthusiast. Uh, I have been uh, into the blockchain and studying it and figuring out how to use it and trying to do stuff with it for many, many years. And I felt like I, I had a unique point of view to contribute to the overall conversation about uh, gaming plus uh, blockchain. And that's why I felt the need to do the talk. As for what changed after the talk, uh, I got a lot more Twitter followers. <laughs> <laughs> so so you're saying it's it. working, is <laughs> what you're saying. <laughs> well, it wasn't my goal, right? Overall, I felt like the goal that I had going into this event, um, we accomplished that. And when I say we, I say not only me, but our student, everybody who helped me make the talk. Also, the everybody who on the side of the indie developers in Brazil specifically agree with my positions. Uh, there was a, a, a big movement, it still is, to boycott events like Big Festival, which is our equivalent to the Game Developers Conference. Uh, it's like the biggest development conference in Brazil that we have right now. So boycott it because they had crypto sponsors or because they had crypto gaming. And I said, no, like, uh, this is not a crypto event. This is a game development event. Like, uh, if we boycott it because we don't agree with things that are there, like, we're not doing ourselves any favors. We need to be there and to say our piece. 
Not to put too fine a point on it, you know, you, Emily also interviewed you for a follow-up story that I'm going to ask her about very shortly. And your quote in that story, you know, just if I may read a piece of it, is essentially characterizing the idea of NFTs and video games as a gimmicky technology that provides nothing of value besides a make-money-quick scheme. What I would love to get your perspective on is why, as a person who makes games, do you not think there's any value in this particular technology, contrary to what other people who also make games are trying to argue? If I had to choose a few core things, I feel like it is about what games are for in society. Because I, I try to bring a lot about this. Like, what value do we actually offer to society uh, as artists, as entertainers, as media creators uh, involved in making video games? I feel like to these days, the, the players, not only video game players and young people, but especially young people, the, the, the Gen Z, uh, they feel hopeless. They feel powerless, right? It's a generation that looks at all the issues and all the, the problems that they have ahead of them, and they don't feel like they have what it takes to take them on. And I think the video games, among many, many, many other things, is a place where you can be powerful, where your actions can be meaningful, where you can be the hero, right? Where you can have a power fantasy, a control fantasy, where you can feel like you're in control, you're important. You matter. Your actions matter. Your decisions matter. And this is all relates to your concept, that, which is very important in game design, technically, which is meaning, right? Um, and what I think that everything that has been done in the space, and it was always the intention to do that, right? Like, um, it's not a surprise that NFTs are doing, is to bring economic factors into gaming in a way that brings the one thing that I really don't want to bring from the real world into games or any other kind of entertainment, which is oppression. So when you bring economic, uh, real world economics into game design, what you do, and again, I'm simplifying this very much. I go into, into this more in depth in my talk, but what effectively what you're doing is you're bringing oppression into these, uh, into these spaces, right? Which are supposed to be, uh, fantasy spaces, spaces of imagination, spaces of empowerment, spaces, spaces of meaning, right? Like a, suddenly you are oppressed in the video game. You no longer can win. I, I think that's the thing about, one of the things about classic games and classic game design is you, you always can win. It's always possible to win, right? Uh, the moments where you feel like it's no longer possible to win is the moments where the game is no longer relevant. Like you don't want to play anymore. It's not, it's not possible to win. And that's not true to many real-world uh, interactions, right? It's not always possible to win, and and that that's what oppression is. And when you bring this into games, you destroy the possibility of winning. You say, you know, the phrase that you use there, which I find is very interesting, is kind of like in classic or classical game design, because the idea of pay to win was certainly not invented by crypto people. You know, that that is the casualization of mobile gaming, the idea of loot boxes, the idea of gotcha, the the whole notion of, sure, you can get to level five, but if you want to get to level 50, it's going to cost you either tens of thousands of hours of your life or hundreds of dollars, um, has been extremely prevalent in in games for a long time. You know, like 
from in-app purchase to DLCs to like you buy a hero, you know, forget just kind of the economics of consumables, but the the actual mechanical pricing of if you really want this sword and this sword is the thing that you're going to need to, you know, be the hero, it's going to cost you money. So those those elements aren't crypto specific, what you're describing, but they are in your argument even more profound in a crypto context. Yes, uh, I think so. Either equivalent or worse. We'll be right back with more from Bloomberg reporter Emily Nicole and video game developer Mark Ventarelli. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Emily, I'm going to go to you to just, you know, sort of zoom out a little bit because you started reporting on the intersection of crypto and gaming when various executives at other studios, particularly the larger ones, thought it was a good idea. And, you know, you had various folks who you will name be like, yeah, what we actually need to do is design an NFT exchange thing where players can monetize and they made, you know, it, they took all of the arguments that Mark is making that are negative and turned them into things of like, here are the reasons why these are good for our players. Who were some of those folks and what's the status of those projects right now? I think one of the, the easiest and the largest uh, publishers to point to on that front is the French publisher Ubisoft, um, which makes the very, very, very popular game franchise Assassin's Creed because they started their kind of, I guess you'd call them Web3 NFT experiments uh, last year, and they came out with a marketplace that was specifically for one of their games. Um, and it was released to the public pretty early. It did have all the usual markers of like, this is a beta test, etc. But, you know, anybody could access it, anybody could buy the NFTs, and they were things like swords and guns and um, and various outfits and things that you could play in this game. But after a few months of being active, pretty much nobody was buying them. Um, the prices were pretty low. And uh, within, you know, by April this year, the whole thing was, was shut down and it was no longer active. And if you hear Ubisoft talk about that project now, uh, the conversation very much goes like, well, this was early research. We were thinking <laughs> about Web3. We were thinking about how we could do this and we were exploring things. And just because we shut it down doesn't mean we're, we're not thinking about Web3 anymore. Or we're not doing things on blockchain. But definitely the overwhelming reaction to that marketplace was not positive from both fans and staff who complained very loudly externally and internally about the fact that Ubisoft was doing something with NFTs. Mark, I have a question for you about it's it's based on, you know, the the Cleon phrase like great artists steal. Is there anything about the arguments 
the proponents of NFTs, et cetera, are making about blockchain, about, you know, this this theoretical future in which more of your fun in-game things are interoperable. Are any of those as concepts separate from the, you know, what folks like to call the tokenomics or the economics of these tokens interesting to game developers? Honestly, um, there isn't, in my opinion, anything in that space that works separately from tokenomics. That's actually the one question that if you ask people who are proposing these kinds of systems, usually breaks them. Like, uh, like if you say, okay, but besides the tokenomics, besides the economic factor, besides all these things, what are you proposing here? And it's usually like, like I said, everything will just new again. Like uh, the things about, for example, interoperability. Like uh, this is not in itself a new idea. Uh, at large scale, is a terrible idea. I see people talking about the metaverse, for example, as if well, like uh, you can get an item from game X and then you can use it on game Y. That that sounds fun, and it could be fun if it is designed with intent, but. The idea of the metaverse and the, this idea of interoperability that people would have on the, the, the Web3 space, it's to make it ubiquitous, right? Mm-hmm. When you do that, this is actually a nightmare. You're just removing designers the ability to create meaning. Like uh, I talk about this in my talk as well. Like uh, There's a thing in game design called the magic circle, which is a way that game designers, we can imbue things with meaning, right? So here in Brazil, we play a lot of soccer on the streets, right? And then we use flip-flops to mark where the goal is, Mm -hmm. right? So we're just taking flip-flops and saying, hey, this is the goal. There are no longer flip-flops inside of this magic circle that we are defining here. So that is one of the core verbs of game design is to imbue with meaning, right? and when you try to create these ubiquitous interoperability between games, what, what you're actually doing is you're creating these like a ooze of everything is the same thing. It's the like token, tokenization in terms of in cultural terms, right? It's the end goal of these, these people, right? They, they actually want to destroy art. Like uh, it's the same thing like if you see like Fortnite, for example, like uh, you really like Spider-Man. Well, you can be Spider-Man in Fortnite and then you can like shoot an AK-47 at Naruto or something like that, right? When you're doing that, it's no longer the Spider-Man, right? If you like Peter Parker, if you like uh, Miles Morales, like if you like these kinds of characters, and that's why you like Peter Parker, and oh, that's why you like Spider-Man, sorry. Uh, that person there, that character there, is just the brand, it's just a token. It's not Miles Morales, it's just Spider-Man the token, right? It's, it's, it's not, there's no depth to it, there's no real meaning to it, it's empty, it's soulless. And what you actually achieve if you try to do large-scale interoperability between games is that you destroy this meaning. You destroy that. You destroy art. You destroy expression. You destroy character. You destroy subjectivity. Like, uh, just everything becomes literal. And that's one of the things that most concern me in current society. I think we are... It's the death of imagination, right? I, I think we're very much a literal society. Like the, the current rise of like uh, alt rights and stuff like that is very much connected to people being very literal as a response to an overload of our of our senses of our like ability to interpret this overload of information coming at us right 
uh, the swarm of information coming at us and to make everything just literal. That is extremely dangerous, not only to video game and artistic expression in general in entertainment, but for us as a society. I love a podcast that is both existential and spicy at the same time. So I think we are. <laughs> I think we're going to end it there. Thank you both, Emily. Thank you very much. Mark, Brigada. It was a pleasure having you both on the show. You can find more of Emily Nicole's reporting on the Bloomberg Terminal on Bloomberg.com or follow her on Twitter. She's at Emily J. Nicole. On the next episode of Bloomberg Crypto, there's nothing straightforward about a crypto bankruptcy. And in finance, where there's complexity, there's going to be someone ready to make money from the chaos. On this next episode, you'll hear from one of the people who's finding opportunities in the crypto distress. This is Bloomberg Crypto, a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Send us your comments, questions, or suggestions for the show to crypto at Bloomberg.net. Or find us on Twitter, we're at Crypto. The supervising producer of Bloomberg Crypto is Vicky Vergolina. Our senior producer is Janet Babin. Our producer is Mohammed Farouk. Associate producer is Moses Andam. Desta Wonderad is our engineer. Original music by Leo Sidrin. I'm Stacey Marie Ishmael. We'll be back tomorrow. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.